Chapter 16 of The Life of Oscar Wilde by Robert Sherard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 16 In Wandsworth Prison first, and then in Reading Jail, Oscar Wilde's mental development reached a point of transcendency to which never in the world of men he could have hoped to attain. There had been forced upon him the recluse life which has raised many men in the world's history towards the stars, but which, perhaps, never before demonstrated its reforming and enhancing powers in a manner more magnificent, more orbicular, more triumphant. In the old days he had tried to imitate Balzac in his mode of life, but society and pleasure had ever knocked at the door of his cell, nor had he had the strength of will great enough to resist their allurements. Now there were iron bars between him and the wasteful pleasures of the world, a claustration as strict, if less severe, than that which Balzac imposed upon himself, held him fast and he had the time to think. He had the time to think, and with a brain which at last had recovered its splendid normal power. The prison regime, the enforced temperance in food, the enforced abstinence from all narcotic drugs and drink, the regular hours, the periodical exercise, the simple life, in one word, had restored to him the splendid heritage that he had received from nature. What the real Oscar Wilde was, and of what he was capable, were now to be made patent. In De Profundis, he laid his soul bare, and the impartial are to judge from that book of the man's new powers as a thinker and as a literary artist. His friends will ask no more than that, reserving to themselves the high delight of taking a holy joy in the lofty virtues which that book reveals, the kindness, the patience, the resignation, the forgiveness of sins, so splendid that one may almost believe that in his ardent meditations on Christ he was able to bring the bodily presence of the God who taught these things into his cell, and to learn from the divine lips themselves what is the true secret of human happiness. In the ensuing chapter, we have from the pen of a man who saw him day by day in prison a description of him which shows that he put into hourly practice the lessons he had learned. Critics abroad have said that there is too much about Christ in De Profundis, overlooking the fact that the book is from page one to last inspired by Christ, that no man who had not found Christ could have written that book, nor lived as the man who wrote it did live. In England one heard it said that it is absurd to believe that an agnostic, a sensualist, would turn to religion, and the blasphemous statement has been made that this book is in its way no more sincere than the dying confessions of many prison cells, the greasy cant that officious chaplains win from fawning prisoners. One has heard the word hypocrisy pronounced. 
it is a thousand pities that people are placed by common consent in places of authority and allowed to pronounce opinions who from a total absence of scientific training are utterly incompetent to opine and unworthy to pronounce it is an elementary fact that when the mind of man either by his own volition or by the force of exterior circumstances is concentrated on the bare facts of existence it becomes religious it is also noteworthy writes mr ernest crawley in his remarkable and most interesting study of religion the tree of life that while the over-cultured man and the abstract thinker so often discard religion simpler and actually more complete souls cleave to it with an instinctive faith but every man when he happens to be brought face to face with the eternal realities of existence becomes ipso facto a religious subject in De Profundis, Oscar Wilde describes the road by which he came from hyperculture and abstract thought to a simplicity and completeness of soul. In the same book may be found many of the awful details of his prison life. None of the humiliation, none of the sufferings ordained by our prison regulations were spared to him. He himself would have been the last to wish that any exception should be made in his favour. The first three months of his confinement in Wandsworth Jail were months of atrocious anguish. He relates that the idea of suicide was at all times with him. The want of means wherewith to effect his purpose alone saved his life. At the end of this period, he was seen by a friend who found him, quote, greatly depressed, prone to tears. His hands were disfigured, the nails were broken and bleeding, the face was emaciated and irrecognisable. In the following month, that is to say on 21st September 1895, he was visited in prison by his wife, by special permission from the Home Office. His appearance produced upon the unfortunate woman an impression from the shock of which she never recovered. After leaving the jail, she wrote to the friend who had induced her to take to the prisoner the solace of her forgiveness and love, a pathetic letter in which unconsciously she revealed how great her affection still was for her husband. It was indeed awful, she wrote, more so than I had conception of. I could not see him and I could not touch him, and I scarcely spoke. It is in these words, I could not touch him, that one reads the love that still was in her, for to touch the cherished one is ever an instinctive prompting. The poor woman left him, having made up her mind, as she afterwards told the same friend, to take him back to her after his imprisonment was over. In the spring of the following year, as Oscar Wilde gratefully records in De Profundis, she travelled all the way from Genoa to London, to break to him the terrible news of his mother's death. This was the last time that the two met. After Oscar Wilde's release, circumstances arose which delayed their definite reconciliation, and then came that which parts the tenderest spouses. Constance Wilde, who had been long ailing, and who had never recovered from the horrible shock of the catastrophe which shattered her home, 
was released from a world so full of cruel surprise to the simple and gentle by death. She died in Genoa about one year after her husband had left prison. She was a simple, beautiful woman, too gentle and good for the part that life called upon her to play. She was a woman of heart whom kindlier gods would never have thrown into the turmoil and stress of an existence which was all a battle. Her death was to Oscar Wilde's affectionate heart a sorrow which accentuated his despair. His love for her, for the very reason that it never was a strong physical attachment, was pure, deep, and reverent. From a poet to a poem is what he once wrote in her album. This apparent cynic was, in fact, endowed with all the family virtues which men love to record of the departed. His conduct towards his mother is known, and as a husband he was what he had been as a son. These Irishmen are very wonderful in their loyalty towards their own kin. He was no friend to his brother in his lifetime, but he never allowed anyone to say in his presence a single word of disparagement about him. He quarrelled with several friends who had ventured to speak slightingly about Willie. That ten years' quarrel with a famous Irish writer, to which reference has been made, arose from no other cause. After Willie's death, his memory had a champion in Oscar Wilde. For his children, he felt deep affection. Ernest La Jeunesse, in that masterly article which he wrote after Wilde's death, relates what a revelation it was to him to hear Oscar speaking about his sons. It showed a new man to him, an Oscar Wilde whom he had not known, of whose existence he had never had the joyful comprehension. He spoke so simply, like a good father, and with such joy and gladness. The passage is one which, in an essay that to read is pure delight from the beauty of the thing, forces tears even from those who are reluctant to yield to such emotions in the midst of the highest spiritual delight. To many people who knew Oscar Wilde well, the statement of his domestic virtues will appear unwarranted. It should be remembered of him, however, that he took particular pains to cloak those qualities which might cause him to be compared to the general. A noticeable trait in his character was that although he was loudly assertive of his literary, artistic and ethical principles, he never spoke about himself as a man. He had a horror of anything that resembled self-aggrandizement, and it cannot be doubted that he strove with all his power against that habit of self-accusation, which at times was a pathetic feature of his conversation, because to speak evil of oneself even appears to the hypercritical and uncharitable only a subtle form of self-adulation. In spite of the stringent prison regulations, he appears to have had many opportunities for conversation, and records of such conversations have been jealously preserved. At the time when he was writing De Profundis, he had one afternoon a long talk with a man in Reading Jail, who, writing from memory, supplies for the purpose of this biography the following account of it. Quote, we had been talking of Robert Emmett, when I incidentally remarked that it was curious that he, an atheist, 
should have made so many allusions to the supreme being and a future state in the course of his speech from the dock. That was no doubt due to his Celtic temperament, said Oscar Wilde. Those who are governed by their emotions are more given to hero worship and the worship of the gods than practical people who believe in logic and are governed by what they choose to term their reason. Imaginative people will invariably be religious people for the simple reason that religion has sprung from the imagination. I pointed out that Shelley and Voltaire were highly imaginative people and were sceptics. Of course, he replied, we must allow for exceptions. I am one myself, but it is an open question whether the two poets you mention were unbelievers or simply agnostics. Besides, one's religious opinions are often greatly influenced by private and local events or national contingencies. I dare say the oppression of church and state on the poor in France was the direct cause of Voltaire's apostasy. And may have led to yours, I ventured to say. He remained silent for a time, then stepped aside to allow a fly, which was floating round the door, to enter his cell. You see, he observed, watching its movements, it will be company for me when you have gone. I laughed and repeated my question. What, he said, was the cause of my becoming a man. Remember, I once was a child. Well, I said, hesitatingly, I suppose it was natural development. Just so, he answered, and the cause of my apostasy is spiritual development, or the natural evolution of the mind. You will observe that the various races of the world have various forms of supernatural belief, and if you examine closely into those forms, you will find they accord more or less with the racial characteristics of the people who hold them. And what is true in regard to races is equally true when applied to individuals. I mean, individuals who can claim individuality. Each one makes his own god, and I have made mine. My god might not suit you, nor your God suit me. But as my God suits myself, I wish to keep him, and when I feel so inclined, to worship him. What is your God, then? I asked. Art? No, he said. Art is but the disciple, or perhaps I should say the apostle. It was through art I discovered him, and it is through art I worship him. Christ, to me, is the one supreme artist, and not one of the brush or the pen. But, what is more rare, he was an artist in words. It was by the voice he found expression. That's what the voice is for. But few can find it by that medium, and none in the manner born of Christ. If we acknowledge the divinity of Christ, said I, Neither his words nor his books, his fastings nor his final sufferings, should excite our admiration any more than the strength of the elephant or the fleetness of the deer. If we allow he was a supernatural being, gifted with miraculous power, his sufferings become a farce. 
they resemble a millionaire choosing to suffer the pangs of hunger in the midst of plenty or the fanatic who deliberately inflicts pain on his body for the purification of his soul the divinity in christ said he in its generally accepted sense i of course do not believe but i see no difficulty whatever in believing that he was as far above the people around him as though he had been an angel sitting on the clouds here followed a panegyric of christ something similar to that drawn in de profundis on another occasion when speaking on the same subject i wished to know which label i would present him with supposing i had a bundle containing the names of the world's religions and non-religions and to say take this it fits you he smiled and said he would not accept any of them this he said touching the round piece of cardboard on his coat indicates my address or rather the number of my room and does so correctly i dare say but you couldn't find a card in your superstitious bundle that would correspond with my religion yours is a unique creed then i responded why not explain its tenets and you may make a convert i do not want any converts he replied the moment i discovered that anyone else shared my belief i would flee from it I must either have it all to myself or not at all. Selfish man, I cried. To be a supreme artist, said he, one must be a supreme individualist. You talk of art, said I, as though there were nothing else in the world worth living for. For me, said he sadly, there is nothing else. Do you know he said suddenly the bible is a wonderful book how beautifully artistic the little stories are adam and his wife alone in the beautiful garden where they could have enjoyed all the pleasures of life by simply obeying the laws but he refuses to become a machine and so eats the apple i also would have eaten that apple and in consequence is expelled then young joseph sold into egypt as a slave when he blossoms out as the ruler of a kingdom and his subterfuge to obtain his brother in nearly every chapter you can find something so intensely interesting that one pauses to wonder how it all came to be written the psalms of david the song of solomon how grand it is and the story of daniel all appeal to me as a lover of language and as a lover of art and if i am delighted with the old testament imagery i am charmed with the new christ paul and most of the other characters in the book have for me a singular fascination then take the last book of all how powerful must have been the imagination of the writer why i know of nothing in the whole world of art to compare with it especially those tenth eleventh and twelfth chapters really i have no sympathy with stupid people who cannot admire a book unless they believe in its literal truth i reminded him that the leading agnostics of the century had paid tribute to the beauty of the scriptures and mentioned renan huxley and ingersoll i very much admire he said renan's life of jesus 
and huxley had a captivating style which is seldom to be met with in men of science for instance i remember reading where he said that one could not be a true soldier of science and a soldier of the cross and i thought it a very fine sentence although i did not believe it for between matter of fact and matter of faith there is a wide gulf which science cannot bridge when i go out from here i should like to find a quiet nice little church i shouldn't in the least mind what its denomination was so long as it had a nice simple-minded and good-hearted clergyman one who had religion within him and did not preach somebody else's opinions and practice somebody else's formulas a man who thought of the sinner more than the stipend i can never belong to any of the conventional forms of religion but i should like to be able to extract the good there may be in all Unquote. in de profundis we have wilde's own account of his prison and of what it meant to him in the following chapter we have an objective description of his life there the warder's account of his character as it displayed itself in prison is confirmed by many witnesses the man appeared to all who beheld him in prison as the beau ideal of the christian gentleman it is on record that on the night of his departure many of the wretched prisoners in reading jail were rebuked and even punished for the loudness of their lamentations one of these men said after his release that when c three three went his last hope seemed to have abandoned him his sympathy for his fellow prisoners was so great that he often risked severe punishment in order to give to this one or to that the comfort of his consolations some of the notes which he wrote while in prison to fellow prisoners are still in existence and some have found their way into the market for curiosities de montaigne's remark is here applicable once more there have been people who have seen in these notes words of encouragement for the most part the most evil meanings his sympathy went beyond mere words through his friends he was enabled to help with money many of his fellow prisoners who leaving the jail destitute would otherwise have fallen immediately back into crime while he was in reading jail some lads mere children were committed to prison for snaring rabbits the magistrates had given these hardened poachers the option of paying fines and it was with his money that oscar wilde enabled them to gain their freedom after his release he befriended several of those whose acquaintance he had made in prison although he spoke of himself as an agnostic in jail as is recorded in the conversation above he showed by his conduct that christianity had altogether taken possession of him the singular sweetness and charm of his manners after he came out of prison his tolerance his gentleness his entire self-effacement impressed all those who came near him the warder whose story now follows says of oscar wilde that in prison he appeared a saint so too he appeared to many who saw him during the few months after his release until fatality had driven him back to companionships in the atmosphere of which nothing that was good or noble could subsist end of chapter 16